Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. You can tell it's been about a month <laughs> since uh, we've done this, and I probably look surprised again. Sorry for that. Um, welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, I'm in my renovated house, and it's nice to be back. Um, but things are a little bit out of sorts, so I'm, I'm not quite with it, but we'll, we'll have a good conversation nonetheless. Uh, we've got uh, Bob from Speaker's Corner with us this evening. We're looking forward to chatting to him about his interactions with Islam, He's also made some interesting comments about um, Christian power, which I want to get into, uh, dig into a little bit. But first, let's uh, get all of us on screen. Uh, Dan's here and showing us up with his shirt again. Um, well done, Dan. I've got to say, Phil. I've got to say, Phil. You're the only you're the only person I've seen on YouTube that managed to be surprised by his own introduction. Uh, uh, Part of his own show. It's kind of like, whoa, (laughs) what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) I've done it every time. I told you, brilliant. Is that it? Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, wait a minute. So much happening. It's, it's like one of those, um, it's like the cheesy introductions that you got from those, those TV shows. Oh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> but you did it so totally naturally. It's kind of like, uh, like it will probably keep happening because whatever, for whatever reason, it, it, it just happens. So, um, thanks for all of you joining us uh, on the chat. Feel free to ask questions as we go. Um, Let's just get started straight away. Bob, uh, tell us what you can uh, about yourself um, and uh, what, what you're, you're doing at the moment um, and uh, a little bit about your story, I guess, uh, from a Christian sense. Uh, how, how did you come to faith and, and where do you land at the moment? Um, we just had an interesting conversation about denominations. I'd like others to, to kind of hear that. So, um, if, if you're right repeating yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. So, um, I was born and raised in the North of England. Um, I, 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 I grew up um, in an area where there were lots of Muslims. Um, I went to school with lots of Muslims. And it was because of some Muslims who tried to convert me to Islam that I became a Christian. Um, and they were, you know, big users of the Ahmadidat kind of script, which is the most common script amongst um, Muslims doing dawah and <clears throat> I as, as I looked into it the more I looked into the kind of things that they were saying what I realized is that there were a lot of half truths and some outright lies all mixed together which um, definitely posed a challenge to me because I was so ignorant um, but you know the guy that was was doing this was more interested in winning arguments than he was in winning people's hearts. Um, and so he, it, I think, thankfully, that probably worked in, you know, in my favor in that because he kept trying to humiliate me rather than bring me over to Islam, um, 
it just meant that I kept coming back at him and coming back at him and coming back at him. Um, and thankfully, God placed people in my way who helped me, particularly two Irish nuns who um, sort of gave milk to my early faith. I started going to an Anglican church. Um, and then when they started ordaining women priests, I left the Anglican church and joined the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church. Um, but then became disillusioned with the Roman Catholic church because of so much apathy that I found within it um, that I, I sort of left it. Um, I started attending a charismatic Anglican church. Um, and then I, I, I pulled away from the church and, and, and started going a bit off the rails in my own faith um, for a number of years um, while still having the belief. And then I, you know, uh, a situation happened. Um, you know, my mum passed away. Uh, I had to give up my life in Colombia because um, I was out there at the time. And then I, I came back to the UK and um, started trying to get back into church again, which I found very difficult. Um, and then, but and, and, and by this time, any sort of denominational allegiance had gone. And my attitude was very much about going to whichever church fed my soul. Um, is, it, is that enough of an intro, brief intro? Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah I mean, what, when you were saying that you, you know, by then... Um, trying to um make you convert to to islam how how in, in in what way did that push you towards um christianity in the sense were they were they assuming you were christian because yeah basically uh, you were british uh, the, the, the the guy the guy um assumed that i was um a christian because i was white and for that reason he he you know he was he he, he for instance he asked me you know he assumed that I was a Christian. And one of his very first questions was, was, are you a Unitarian Christian or a Trinitarian Christian? Well, at the time, I didn't even know what the difference was. And I had to ask him, what's the difference? And he told me the difference between a Unitarian and a Trinitarian. And thankfully, because of sort of like, you know, the cultural echo of baptisms and weddings, I'd obviously heard Father, Son and Holy Spirit before. So that's the one that I'd heard before. So that's the one that I said I was. At which point he proceeded to attack, you know, things like the reliability of the Bible, that, the, you know, uh, the Trinity doesn't make sense. How can one be three? How can three be one? Um, you know, the Bible's been changed. Muhammad is prophesied in the Bible, even though the Bible's unreliable. Um, apparently all them bits with Muhammad in it are reliable until you point out that Muhammad isn't in those bits they think they are, and then suddenly they become unreliable again. But... You know, that's a, a, a different story. Um, it's kind of the ad hoc use of scripture that, that's very common amongst Taoists mm. or the Dai. Um, and and as he as as he pushed these arguments onto me, rather than just accept them, I went away and checked. You know, David Wood has, has this statement, it's the 99-1 rule. So 99 people don't go to check what the, the Dai are saying and the one does. But the Dai are playing the game that 99 people won't. Won't, yeah. Well, I, I was the one. I, I was that one. So he would say something, and rather than just believe him, I'd go away and check. And invariably, I found that you know, as I, he, only, he was either only telling me half the story or he was just telling me a barefaced lie. Hmm. 
you know. And I don't think he was lying because he was a, a deliberately deceitful. He he genuinely believed what he himself had been told. So somewhere in that 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 chain of hadiths of the Dai script, you know, someone has been lying their pants off, and um, lots of Muslims are just repeating that. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, no, it's just fascinating. So, do you, so you, did you kind of find yourself defending the Christian position without being a Christian? Yes. Um, in, in, a, in a way. I and I did it. I did it. I did it because of cultural reasons. Mm. Kind of like I came from a working class family, very patriotic. Um, and so when he was attacking Christianity, I felt he was attacking something British. And for that reason, mm. I tried to defend it. Yeah, and and defended it terribly. Like I knew nothing. Um, just one of the very first arguments we had when he was attacking the Bible to humiliate me, he said, "Yeah, like which which is which is the first book of the Bible?" Well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, he turned around and said, um, "And someone said Genesis." So I repeated it. Oh, Genesis. And they said, "Yeah, fair enough." And so what's the second book of the Bible? And I didn't know the answer to that one either. And then someone said Genesis two, and I repeated it, Genesis two, and it's like, I, "Got you." And he had all of these "got you" moments, you know, um, that he that he used to pile in with. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think he realised that what he was doing, he, he was just throwing wood on a fire, you know, that would develop. And over the course of my life, God has used that. Um, for me to have a desire to see Muslims come to the knowledge of the truth. And so from that age, which was about 13, and I'm not 13 now, and no, I'm not telling you my actual age. But <laughs> they, but I've, I've taken it upon myself to do evangelism towards Muslims. So I used to go to um, a library in a Muslim area, and I'd get all the books out that I could on Islam, and I'd sit and I'd study them. So I'd be studying Islam taking all my notes, knowing that the notes that I'm taking are about to come in handy. And invariably, what would happen is that uh, someone Muslim in the library would try to enter into conversation with me. And then I would flip it on them and, and I would start using all that I had learned about Islam to try and evangelize them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the librarians caught on what I was doing and they kicked me out and barred me. <laughs> you know. Um- one one thing, I mean, you, you said that when, when he was speaking to you, it felt like he just wanted to win the argument. He didn't want to win you to yeah. it's the truth of Islam. Um, yeah. In, 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 I'd say, again... This in is his defence, he was young. Yeah, yeah. I was um, 13, he was only like 15, 16. Yeah, and I, I'd say anecdotally, uh, at least, uh, uh, you know, based on my own experience, that often ha- that ha- has often been my experience. I can think of rare exceptions... But when I've when a, a Muslim, you know, practicing Dawah, you know, has wanted to engage with me and persuade me of Islam, I've never felt it's always felt they wanted to win the argument that I felt like we're engaging sort of in in, in medieval jou- a jousting competition about you know who's going to knock each other off the horse first type thing rather than um, a genuine loving invitation to step into the truth um, and. Um, I, I guess that's a, a good segue in, in, into uh, to Speaker's Corner. I mean, that tends to be my experience whenever I've gone there, is it's felt like no one's trying to invite me to truth. They're trying to humiliate, hum, humiliate me or to, or to win an argument rather than an invitation to truth. Yeah. Um, it, it, and often young men. 
Um, is 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 there something about what? Why is why is that? Is that well? I I I, I wouldn't dismiss it um, so quickly because it is actually very effective. Um, you know, uh, Islamic dawah, particularly amongst working class communities, is far far more effective than the soppy kind of evangelism, if any, that is being done by by many churches um because it's got a bit of muscle to it it's got there's a robustness to it yeah. and and believe it or not you know working class people can cope with a bit of cut and thrust in a conversation um but also it it would be too all too simplistic and all too easy to try and say that all islamic dawah is like this actually there's a lot of very sophisticated dawah that's going on um around the world particularly in the UK, mm. being driven by uh, Muslims, mainly from the Asian subcontinent, who are by far the most zealous of all uh, the Muslim communities numerically, um, and the most numerous in the UK. And very much, you know, because, because there are fewer mosques than there are compared to churches, it means that, and, and because Muslims practice what I call the Benedict option, that is, consolidated geographical communities if you go to a mosque it's going to appear full it's going to appear full because the density of population per mosque is is much higher um, whereas a christian may have five churches within a square mile um, a muslim will not necessarily have the same number of choices and so they will you, you have a greater number of muslims going to a any one particular mosque mm. and then you, you bring a visitor into that and and they're very much love bombed people want to know them people want to be their friend people are excited to see them uh, by comparison lots of churches you go to the, the reception is frosty at best mm. you know um because because there's a lot there's a lot that's gone wrong within our Christianity in the West. So let let's not dismiss it because this kind of jousting, mm. um, there's 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 tens of thousands of people who judge the truth based on who wins the argument. Absolutely, yeah. uh, and that's a lot of souls to take seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, so, it's, yeah, it's it's masculine. There is something I I absolutely agree with you because I also like watching it, but with the awareness that. Um, just because someone wins the debate or dominates the debate um, doesn't necessarily that's not that's that's not how we necessarily um, you know come uh, establish what is true but it yeah. is entertaining to watch it's it, I think as a, as a, as a man I, I gravitate towards that um, mm. you know I think that's you know uh, you know similar case you know, who, who who watches MMA Mostly men. You know, we like watching violence and fighting. You know, yeah. a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of men, and it's intellectual fighting. Um, yeah. So it is, and that's why, you know, I, I often like going to speakers' corner because it is entertaining. And and if you look at the comments, the, often people's comments in the comment section, uh, you know, use metaphorical violence. Oh, he he just body bagged him. Oh, he just KO'd him. Oh, he just you know w w he just kicked his ass. And they use that kind of language. And, and the reality is this kind of evangelism that you're seeing me do at Speaker's Corner is, is speaking to a lot of men because the the church has, our uh, the body of Christ has, has failed to harness masculine energy and is intimidated and frightened by masculine energy. 
because masculine energy is is able to enter into conflict is willing to enter into conflict is drawn to conflict and is is um you know um uh, almost wants it to some degree and and the church has um the church because of historical reasons doesn't know what to do with that energy so it constantly suppresses that energy and it constantly seeks to sideline it and this is why as christians we've got a ratio as of one to four for women in the church because the feminine qualities of our spirituality are all on display and so women feel that they can come and they can find something that speaks to them but lots of men come into a church and never come back because they don't see anything in there that they can be a man in hmm. well, it's, it's really interesting there's quite a few threads that that could come out of that i mean interesting the probably leadership wise though that's not necessarily the case uh, across different churches I, I don't know the stats enough to know if that's shifting with regards to like who's who's managing all these um all, all these churches uh, it's not that it's clearly men um and there's also some <laughs> i'm just trying to pull, figure out which thread to pull at the moment so bear pull with up whichever one i mean we're yeah, here yeah. for we're here until may up to 10 so yeah pull that's, on that's, as many as you want yeah, so there's there's partly the thread that that's gone wrong where the church has harnessed masculinity and has become very much authoritative and almost di dictatorial. But I'd, I'd be interested just to sort of explore the kind of things that you've experienced where, where that's worked well in in churches. Maybe maybe let's let's go down that thread. Have you had an experience of of church that has engaged with masculinity in a positive way? Yeah, if you there's there's if you go to fellowships that that emphasize about responsibility and about taking on the burden and the mantle of responsibility, you, you and and you tend to find those particularly in and I hate using this term, but for the want of a better one, black fellowships. Mm -hmm. Like you 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 will and because they're not black fellowships, you'll always find a mix of people in them, but it's just that the majority of people in them. Uh, from an Afro-Caribbean or, or, or African background. They're very big on the idea of responsibility. And, and there's a lot of men that go to those churches. But, but, but it's, you know, uh, and you're right, when, when the church, um, when, when the, the, there are ways that it can go wrong, but it's, its utter absence is proving to be devastating to the church. Yeah. Uh, and it really is proving to be devastating. The rate of apostasy in the West is massive. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about male leadership, but I would say that it's emasculated leadership. Hmm. You know, because many of the male leaders have also come through the effeminized church, and therefore they themselves are very effeminized. You know, and th there's nothing, there's no villainization of the feminine here. And I don't want to sound like anyone, I'm not villainizing femininity. The church should be. 100% feminine but it should also be 100% masculine you know and and it's the absence of that 100% of masculinity that's causing the harm not the presence of the femininity and mm -hmm. the so so churches that that take that that encourage personal responsibility tend to have higher rates of men and that results in um uh, weirdly an equal balance of 
men and women in a fellowship. And it also means that church involvement is higher as well. You know, I've seen fellowships where up to 70% of the fellowship is involved in what the church is doing, as opposed to the 70-30 rule, which is the norm for most of our fellowships, where 30% of people do the work and 70% of people receive a service, mm. you know. And but this, but it, for me, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. Um, well, yeah. Go what on. does what does it mean? So, so I mean, I I, I agree with you largely. I think um, you know there is we we the church as a whole lacks masculinity. You know, yeah. the church. You know, the songs. Um, the <laughs> it, 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 it in many ways it's uncomfortable like i'm like i, I come from a working class background um grew up in croydon like uh, um i and when i first started going to a church it was it was just odd it was it was it was it was odd it felt it felt feminine and there's nothing mm. there's nothing wrong with that but but it in in, in itself but it, it felt it felt like a feminine environment um and and i and the the problem today is is that when you start talking about masculinity one you have to understand people don't understand there is a people don't understand what masculinity is people yeah. think automatically go to extreme you know so they'll go oh toxic masculinity you know authoritarianism violence um aggression anger um and you'll hear examples like so you know uh, mark driscoll is a great example um you know well are you aware of mark driscoll i i i am and i I might have some interesting views on mark driscoll yeah so i i I really enjoyed i was one of those uh sort of young guys only being a christian for a little little while became a christian when i was 20 and really liked listening to mark driscoll because it was a uh, it was a it was a breath of fresh air because i was Mm. listening to someone who was theologically informed uh, loved the gospel, seemed to love people, loved to um, loved love to evangelize, to defend the faith, um, and I, I, I gravitated to, towards that um, because it was it was so unique. Um, and obviously, but what what tends to happen, my experience has been with uh, with other people and other you know, personal other people's experiences that unfortunately what happens sometimes is with those kinds of people um, in terms of personality traits that that alpha maleness has has benefits but it has deficits and downsides as well i would i would say that i would say that there's, that, that there's, there's too much timidity here like mm. if if we accept that men should be men in the church then let then let them be men like mm. stop stop trying to curtail them like in in the I, we we know that there are risks. Uh, we we know that there are dangers, and obviously, discipleship is meant to cultivate these things, and and that's why it's important to teach the practice of virtue, to teach the chivalrous code, uh, the chivalric code. You know the chivalric code. You know uh, the, this 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 would address many of the the things that you're talking about. Just these two things: the cultivation of virtue and the chivalric code would would address your concerns but let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good because what we've got is a situation where there's such a a timidity and fear of violence and um, aggression which incidentally are not bad things 
and I will argue that they're not bad things until I'm blue in the face. It depends on the context that decides whether they're good or bad. They're not objectively good or bad things. They are they are good or bad things depending on the context in which they exist. You know, the violence of World War the violence of World War Two and their allies, I, people would say, was a good thing yeah. because it defeated. Yeah, I don't the Nazis. think I don't think there's any debate about. Um, you know, yeah. their, their so let's not, let's not villainize yeah. let's not villainize violence and aggression. You know, yeah. let let us see them as things to be disciplined within the heart, as opposed to things that we should be frightened of. You know, they they're not things to be frightened of. They're things to be harnessed, like yeah. any other energy. You know, so uh, that's that's okay. Yeah, that, that, that links really nicely into the, some of the sort of uh, Christian power type language. That uh, so this is something that I've been mulling over as well, is how we handle things like the church in Afghanistan, like uh, persecuted underground church in China, or, or any name name a location that's persecuted, um, and other than the West. <laughs> yeah, and um, you'll you'll find an element of um, what I would describe as meekness, uh, but but I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it power, partly because power comes with the, the sort of cultural baggage. Um, there is a Christian power to it, but from, from what I see as Christian power is looking at Christ and seeing um, uh, a willingness to hold back Peter from striking uh, the people coming to arrest him the yeah. willingness to not call on the legions of angels to to hold to his defense but also to allow himself to be conquered and we've got all the verses of revelation where it's the blood of the martyrs so i just always like want, want to see a bit of clarity on what, what you mean by what does that power look like in your mind in relation to the in, ever increasing encroachment of, of islam and, and particularly the the violent forms of Islam that we see in Afghanistan and um, Nigeria and, and places like that, that are just outright on the extermination of Christians. Ooh. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what, what we're talking about is, is a rediscover, uh, rediscovery of our, our own identity as a Christian people. You know, we're not, we're not Catholics or Protestants. Mm. We're Christians. You're a Christian, Phil. I'm a Christian. Dan's a Christian. We're a people. We've got a history. Mm. That history informs how our values and our doctrines are expressed in the modern world. And they are expressed in the way we do politics, in the way that we do economics, and in the way that we do the sociocultural matrix. Um. And, and, and we have our own culture that emerges from those doctrines and those values. And it's simply to say that we are confident that this is our identity. We are unwilling to compromise. Um, and we are willing to accept martyrdom, suffering and conflict to be Christian, to defend our faith. And and so what how that expresses itself in in politics, for example, when Paul went before Agrippa in the in the Book of Acts, Agrippa was a king, a king in command of armies and and men at arms, and Paul sought to convert Agrippa 
to the Christian faith. Now, remember, Paul in his teachings taught that in whatever station, whatever state you came into the faith, you know, don't be frightened to remain there. And he made one exception for slaves. And he said, slaves, if you can get your freedom. But if you're married, stay married. If you're divorced, remain single. You know, um, um, if you're uh, a master, stay a master, that kind of thing. So if Agrippa became a Christian, let him do the thought experiment with me, guys. If Agrippa became a Christian, would we not have a Christian king? It sounds legitimately, uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so would that Christian king not then be the commander of armies? course yeah and so would you not command those armies in keeping with the faith you'd hope so right now and, and of course you know you, you'd hope so but obviously people mm. being people they don't but the reality is if we accept that paul was right to convert to try and convert agrippa then then that means that it is right for christians to take control of political mechanisms including the use of armies and that means that it is right for Christians to command armies in a Christian way to a Christian end to a Christian telos hmm. and that's it didn't happen in Paul's lifetime but it certainly happened with Constantine and then Justinian and then you know the the king of um Armenia and hmm. the Grand Nagus of um, Ethiopia you know it didn't happen in Paul's lifetime but both Paul and Peter evangelized political institutions because um, Peter evangelized the Sanhedrin hmm. Hmm. which were the civil authority of Jerusalem and Israel no, so Christians yeah, can have yeah. power yeah uh, and they can and they, they have had and potentially are, are losing said power in my mind, it, that and and this is possibly where where I've gone. I don't know, maybe, maybe wrong uh, on this, but my mind things started going against the gospel when that power was governmental, almost when it was authoritative in the sense of um, because it started corrupting people. I, I, I need to conquer this nation for Christ. I need to conquer this. I need, um, it's, it's better to to kill the heathen if they don't convert than, than, and let God sort them out. Like that that kind of attitude of... Um, I, I would say, Phil, that your reading of history, no offence, and I mean this in, in general, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's very work. simplistic. <laughs> it may well be. I think it's that's really simplistic. Yeah. yeah. The reality is when Constantine converted, it meant that not only did Christianity become legitimate it became fashionable and actually that accelerated the number of conversions to the christian faith and yes mm -hmm. there would have been fake conversions amongst that lot but there's still yeah. fake conversions today and Absolutely. you know um but there would have, but there was also a great number of people that came to faith genuinely mm. yeah so i my my connection to constantine wasn't necessarily the conversions of souls by the sword necessarily but that has been a thread throughout christian history um i mean when 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 um when uh what's his name hold on uh carolygian oh charles martel i think um he certainly um 
the oh Charlemagne, there we go. Mm. He certainly waged war against the Saxons. Um, you know, uh, and that was connected to the idea of conversion. But I, if I remember, the Saxons were raiding his kingdom at the time. Mm. But then when he conquered his opponent and the king of his enemies became Christian, he became the godfather to that person. Same mm. with, um, you know, Alfred the Great. Um, he became the godfather of the Vikings that he defeated. And, 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 this, and, the, and the mutual Christian faith was a source of unity between peoples and one of the uncomfortable truths that i have no problem with and i think christians have no problem that, that lots of christians have a problem with is that the reality is the existence the continued existence of the church was secured by the sword mm. the, the the sword and the use of the sword not only defended the church from destruction, but it also um, created the setting and the conditions by which the Christian faith spread. Now, I want to caveat this very clearly by stating we shouldn't use the sword to spread the faith. I, I, I don't believe that we should, mm. but I do believe that we should use politics to create the best opportunity for the gospel. Hmm. Well, there's definitely been a, his a history of that in the sense of um, people put, who is it? Was it the Moravians enslaved themselves so that they could better? Yeah, it wasn't just the Moravians. It wasn't just yeah. the Moravians. There was, there was saints from ancient times that did exactly the same. Yeah. So utilizing the systems at play, even those that are corrupt to, to evangelize. I mean, that's yeah. quite, quite some dedication, but that's, yeah. that's like an inverted power though, to enslave yourself to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm not knocking the Moravians, but no. but a lot more people were converted, um, you know, but from the top down than from the bottom up. Uh, yeah, in I'm, history. Not, I'm not sure if that's true. Okay, go on. Yeah, so um, it could it could be true, it could be true, um, but it's not. I don't think that's self evidently the case. I think if you look at the history, you know, you just talk about Charlemagne, Charles Martel. You start looking at those those sorts of um, their engagements with pagan nations, pagan engagements with Christian nations. It's messy. Like um, it, it's it's a lot messier um, than, than than we often think. So uh, so you know when we're talking about so and so becoming Godfather, well that's often politically expedient and not necessarily representative of uh, you know. Um, you know, or so and so gave so and so's daughter to, uh, you know, for them to marry, and you know, to a, a Christian king and things like that. A lot of those things is it, it very, very quickly becomes messy, and it's, it is often hard to distinguish between what is generally guided by uh, a changed heart and mind uh, for for Christ and and political expediency. Well, um, look at look at um, the first the first Christian czar of the Russians. Um, I forget which what his name is. I want to say Ivan the Terrible, but I don't think he was the first. Actually, I think it was <laughs> no. someone else. Um, but but he was a, a pretty atrocious man as a pagan. Then when he became a Christian, uh, this this czar of the Rus, um, he changed, and you could see it in the way of how he ruled before he became a Christian and how he ruled after he became a Christian. But it was the fact that he became a Christian that led to the conversion of the Rus. 
before then the Rus were pagans. The, the, the reality is through most of history and, and for many societies up until very, very recently, the, the chief, the king, um, people followed them. We saw that in the Reformation, you know, the, the faith of the, the monarch became the faith of the people. And, and, and the reality is that that's just how medieval structures, medieval societies worked, that the faith of the leader became the faith of the people. That only really began to change at the Reformation. Onwards. Yeah, yeah, it became something you inherited, not something necessary. There's something genuine. So I don't. I'm not negating the fact that a certain king, or queen, or prince, or but you're assuming that just because it's inherited, that therefore it's not genuine. And and I disagree. No, I'm saying it, I, I think it's less likely to be genuine. I think if you look at the, the on behavior, what basis you look, at, you look at church attendance, you look at um, you look at all sorts of data. Was far higher. Say, yeah, but 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 that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, but that's my you point. Could, you'd have a church full of hypocrites. But, 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 if you, but, but, but you, you can't say that they're hypocrites because you have no evidence that they were hypocrites. Okay. But mm -hmm. what we can say is that they but went you, to But church. you can't say they're genuine, yeah. But you can't... Yeah, but if you look at... Let's say... Right, but let's, let's go back oh, to... No, hold on, hold, hold on. on. Let me we give can, an example. Can, 19th can, century. If you go wanted on. to go to university, you had to be an Anglican. Yeah, so, true. So the, so the motivation in that case, it's very hard to distinguish between... right. Was there going to church the mo genuine motivation of I've been changed by the gospel or is it expedient for me to be a successful person? So but, it's really but, it's really difficult to distangle these two things. But, but, uh, I, uh, but I think and, and, and you're right. But what I'm saying is the assumption is that the assumption of lots of people who are hesitant about power and, and Christianity mixing is the assumption is that the that you fall on the side that ah, most of them were probably hypocrites and didn't really mean it I'm well, not I, saying that. I, I i well i i fundamentally disagree with that perspective i actually think that yes there will have definitely been hypocrites you only have to look at the 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 the, the, the who's the bourgeons the pat the popes that were utterly corrupt yeah bourgeois bourgeois no, no, they, they had an entire series on TV about how corrupt they were. I mean, they were yeah. utterly corrupt. Mm. Um, they were like the lowest point the papacies ever had. But the, the fact of the matter is, when you think that these people built the churches, they ordered their life around the Christian faith, you know, they didn't know anything else. It was the source of all their education. The, the the idea that these people were insincere, or the masses were insincere, is ridiculous. Hmm. They would have been sincere because that's the only thing they would have known. Well, there's no alternative. But that doesn't mean that they're not sincere. Uh, absolutely, I agree. But what I'm saying is... So my argument about, is... We're talking about an if age that is where... the only, but That's my point. If they, that's the only thing they've ever known, then we yeah. can assume that they were sincere until proven otherwise. We shouldn't assume that they were insincere until proof. We should assume their innocence, not assume the guilt. Right. And there's no evidence for the guilt of the masses. The very fact that the Reformation erupted, think about this. This is a, a case in my favor. Sure. The very passions that were invoked by the Reformation is a demonstration of how serious people took their faith. Yeah, the sectarian, I mean, it was violent. Murderous, uh, completely, uh, yeah, uh, and, and tragic. And is, is, is Christian that the civil war? Of the spirit is no, murder. But, is 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 hatred? Of course, of none of these things are done. But the real what I'm you're, you're missing the point that I'm making. I'm pointing out 
that they took this thing seriously. Mm. Not yeah, that yeah, they I were playing with it. So, so that's the point that I'm making. Mm. The very fact that they were sectarian is the failing. The very fact that a Christian should raise a sword against another Christian is, is a failing. And that's the problem with nationalism. And this is why Christians should avoid nationalism. Mm. Because nationalism has caused Christian to fight Christian, which is an anathema. Mm. Mm -hmm. Christian, can't, you, can't, you can't attack the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So Christians should never fight another Christian ever for any reason. So what I mean, let's uh, say I agree with you in terms of. So if we look throughout history, let's say your your reading of history is right. I mean, that that only really tells us in terms of you're describing history, whether that's something that should yeah. be prescribed, whether that's something that should be pursued. Power is actually a completely different question. And mm. I think that's where history is more enlightening in terms of how often Christians have got it wrong. Not that it can't have beneficial impact on a society at large in terms of communicating, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values and things like that, which we've obviously lost and we've lost uh, political power and influence. Um, but whether it's something we can pursue is a different question. I think that's much harder to to argue for, given the record of how often we get it wrong. Well, I, I again, I think I think the re I, well, here's here's the thing that I would say to you guys, and I would say to all my brothers and sisters who are watching this: do not underestimate how much of your your feeling and sense of history has been filtered by the Enlightenment. That suspicion of the Church being involved in power has come from the Enlightenment period. It comes from Enlightenment uh, polemic and apologetic that was itself deeply anti-Christian. Okay. No Christian before the Enlightenment, well, actually, I'll take that back. No Christian before the Reformation, um, and only then certain, certain minorities within the Reformation would have ever questioned the idea that Christianity can mix with power. It, we have picked up this sense of, this sense of hesitancy this sense of, and I, I would say it being cooked, this idea of, you know, like uh, having our spine taken out of us from the Enlightenment. And that's influencing how you see history, because I would argue the contrary, that yes, Christians got it wrong a lot when they were in power, but they also got it right a lot when they were in power and the the moderns the the ones that talk about you know separating religion and politics uh let, let's look at what they've brought they brought world war one they brought world war two they brought the gulag they brought the, the 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 extermination camp they brought abortion they've brought euthanasia the redefinition of marriage they've brought the um you know, are, are these are, are we to say that they are better? Have well, they done I mean, better? Those no, are, of are culminations of history. You know, you we could go back to say, look at the um, Hundred Year War, or go and look back at different points of history and think, right, if they had, if those, if those guys had access to the technology that we had in the twentieth century, you've had exactly the same thing. You're dealing with sinful, uh, powerful people. Um, who were utilising um, the means they had to kill as many people as they could and to win at any cost. Um, and you would have seen the same people doing the same things their own day, so they didn't have access to those things. So I don't, I don't think 
it, it it's hard for me to look back and think right if i look back at charlemagne or charles martel i think oh if they had access to uh you know uh airline carriers and fighter jets and nuclear weapons and uh and you know they wouldn't have utilized those things in the same way that people did in the 20th century i find that hard to well, I, I, I would, of... I would, I would want to, I would want to challenge you on so many points. Like, firstly, the Hundred Year War wasn't a religious war; it was a, a war about it doesn't have to be a monarchy. Yeah. So, it, so you, you you brought it up as an example, but it, it's well, not an effective did those example. People, did, did those did those people think of themselves as Christians? Yeah, of course they did, but they were that's, fighting. That, that's what they I mean. were fighting. I know, I know. They were fighting. Yeah, but they were yeah, fighting. I understand the cause. They, they weren't fighting for religious. religious. They weren't fighting religious. It wasn't but a religious were, but war. But they were. But they were Christians. But they weren't fighting a religious war. That the, they were fighting a war for political reasons, as in rights of succession. In terms just, of just on that point, sorry, does, does that just on that pushback? I'm just trying to seek clarity. Does that mean if if a Christian is in Christians are in power, and as a Christian king, should they only go to war over religious reasons? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, that would be impossible. But I, I genuinely am utterly, personally convinced that a Christian could ne should never bear arms against another Christian. So every time a Christian raises a hand to another Christian, it, it's blasphemy because in you is the holy spirit in me is the holy spirit so how can we ever ever seek to do harm to the temple of the holy spirit mm -hmm. but the reverse side of that is how can we allow the holy spirit to be harmed so when a jihadi is 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 raping a christian woman and destroying a christian family and enslaving christian children and killing crispy christian men how, how how can we do how can we not do something about that? Mm -hmm. And 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 I always find it I always find it beguiling that you know the Holy Father in Rome says things like you know you shouldn't fight back, but yet he's got a personal guard. If he's genuinely wanting to be pacifist, tell him to send away all of his personal guards and to not be guarded. Mm. Because why yeah. should he have protection, but the poorest Christian can't have protection? Mm. Yeah, I think oh, that's really interesting. Pacifism. I think it's a good ideal, hard to live out. So I think it's a sin. No, no, pacifism is a sin because <laughs> pacifism Whoa. pacifism allows evil to prosper. Well, it's entirely it's entirely dependent upon other people defending you. If oh. you were going to get mugged, would you call the police? Yeah, I, and you're so, consenting to violence, or consenting to a peaceful arrest because I wouldn't expect the police to beat them up and kill them. What happens if they had to? This the interaction with with the law. So, I, I and mean, that's, that's really so, interesting. So, so, yeah. but the point is, it's not a consent to violence. Living in the police is not a consent. It is a consent to violence. We we not. live in a society that accepts the use of violence. That's why you pay your taxes to the army. And it's why you pay your taxes to the police. The police go around our streets armed. They have the right to use lethal force. That's My a consent taxes to violence. Used for abortion. I don't consent to abortion. Exactly. So, but we live in that society, you know. So, are you saying that you if are you saying that you would want the police to be done away with? No. It's, it's uh, no are you saying you would want the armed forces to be done away with? No. 
Right. So you, we're all accepting that there is a proper use for violence, and that's scriptural it's because that's what it says in Romans. Yeah, Thank I, you. I, I, I agree with what Romans says, yeah. Thank you. And and so you, you made a point, Dan, about whether it's prescriptive or descriptive. And yes, I gave a description of history. But if you remember, I talked about a Paul trying to convert Agrippa. Agrippa yeah. was a king. So that means that it is right for Christians to evangelize the political structures. Mm -hmm. And the full reality of a, of a masculine faith is that we accept that, that there is a place for violence, that there is a place for aggression, but properly disciplined, properly discipled unto the Lord, properly used in his cause. Yeah, I mean, I, I would never disagree with that to begin with. I think... I've never, I've, I've never disagreed with the fact that violence is not morally permissible. Yeah. Well, you yeah. push back, so I push yeah. back. And yeah. Now yeah, no, it's yeah. good. That's what, that's what I do. That's why I want to push back. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, so we all yes. agree then. Oh, ish. So I, I think, ish, I think yeah. where, where I'm at with the, the passage front, because this is something that I've, I've sort of been exploring, I'm not by any means a pacifist in the sense that I agree that in its right place, there is a place for... Um, violence as you put it in this in the sense of police in the sense of military uh and, and defending a defending the innocent there has to be a place for that within the christian war but i know mean, the point is phil like it, yeah lots of christians get their knickers in a twist they accept it in principle but then they've got no place for it in practice mm. So I think, I think it's the in, I think where the, where the confusion is, and maybe this is is coming out in in the sense that I'm I'm verbally processing at the same time. But the the difference between state and church is, is there the the, yeah. the split, and I'm not quite sure how. I haven't processed enough in my own theology how the two might work together. So even your thought experiment on King Agrippa is quite an interesting one. But in the sense of what our society looks like. Um, at the moment it's more that we as christians aren't in power mm. and so our our walk and our faith should look more like new testament and and even the early christians were very well were, were quite pacifist <laughs> in the sense of how they they walked they laid down their lives they saw that as conquering evil so it wasn't that they were laying down their lives because they were weak or letting it happen in that sense but they, they saw that's what Christ did. And so they followed that. And that was that was Christian power is that in laying down their lives, they are somehow conquering evil. And and the, the, the difficulty for me is and when you give a picture of someone else is laying is being attacked. Where does that fit in with the Christian walk of how I step in uh, violently or otherwise? Because I remember this conversation happening at uh in high school i went, I went to a, a religious school and and the conversation went basically in that situation you're not meant to do anything as a christian i can't i can't have that that just and that upset a lot of people someone making that comment mm. so th there's there's this like tension in the christian walk of laying down one's life conquers evil and stops violence because all through the old testament the violence that ends up with god's judgment and Christ ends that by laying down his life. So mm -hmm. we're meant to emulate laying down our lives. Mm -hmm. That's what the early church started to do. And then when those power structures in place, 
it got confused. <laughs> and it, no, and well, yes, I, see, I disagree. It didn't get confused. It was always confused. It was confused okay. right from the very beginning. There, there were Christian, there were Christian legion legionnaires. Um, legionnaires is that a word? There, there were there were there were Christians in the Roman army before the conversion of Constantine. Yeah, um, and, and and many of them were martyred precisely because when they were commanded to kill Christians, they refused to do so, right. which is a message and a, a statement to every serving uh, soldier in every army that ever hears this. If you're a Christian, you cannot fight another Christian ever under mm. any circumstances. And if that means you lose your job, you lose your job. If it means you go to prison, you go to prison. So it's always been... Um, uh, it's always been confused. Hmm. The thing that happened post the Battle of Milvian Bridge, which incidentally was one army wearing a Christian symbol fighting against another army that wasn't because their emperor had had a vision from our Lord, um, that Christianity became legal after the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And it just became confused in a different way because now it wasn't so clear who your enemies were and who weren't your enemies because Christianity was suddenly legal. But I agree with you is something that you said, which is our world today in the West represents um, something much akin to the, the New Testament than the, you know, post Milvian bridge kind of setup. You know, it's not the it's not post edict of Milan. It's kind of like uh, what was before that. And I think that have you guys ever heard of the Benedict option? Yeah, yeah, I read it a while back. Yeah. So I think in in our current circumstances, what what Christians need to be doing is to to consolidate geographically. Hmm. But that will have a political impact. Because if we consolidate geographically by constituency and we take over as many constituencies as we can by consolidating and moving into them, we're the ones that are going to be sitting on the school boards. We're going to be the ones that get elected to be the councillors. We're going to be the ones that end up becoming the local police officers. We're going to be the ones that end up becoming the MP. We're going to be the ones that, um, you know, um, sit on the parish councils. Um, and, and, and that means that we're going to be we're going to be the ones deciding which cafe gets our um, customer or not based upon whether they're supporting the LGBTQ transgender agenda or whether they're supporting a, a pro-traditional marriage stance. Okay. Because in the, in the collapse of Christendom, we Christians need to consolidate. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkarf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Christians have power. That's a, and it, it, in a weird way, because I haven't heard a Christian speak like this. It, it my, my, my initial reaction is um, repulsive is too strong a word. 
but yeah. I'm, I, I, it, 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 Gets your it, makes, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And that's the it, feels like, it feels like you want. No, no, I don't necessarily. Think, I think. I, I think there's there, there's there's truth to what you're saying, um, but there, there's also some some pitfalls as well. I think of course there's pitfalls. Uh, there's I'm, not, I'm not very. I'm no, not no, saying there's very no pitfalls. human about wanting power, and 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 something that it's it's, it's a, it feels like to me. Again, I haven't thought about this very much because yeah. I'll be honest, it's not something I've thought about. I haven't spoken to anyone about it really. But it, it it feels very human. It feels like a human way. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue power. It feels like a human way to solve a, um, a the, the problem. Instead of letting God have vengeance eschat eschatologically, it's about no. It's our. We're going to use our power to get to uh, to uh, fight what, oppression what? to uh, to 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 to, um, to bring about justice uh, and you know for the glory of God. And let me retort. Let me retort because because I, I again I, I stress to you I, I don't think you guys appreciate how much you've been influenced by the Enlightenment. Like I cannot stress this to you enough how the Enlightenment has conditioned Christians to think that it is somehow wrong for Christians to be political. If you accept that God is meant to be the Lord over your entire life then that means that he is the Lord over your entire life. And that includes your politics, mm -hmm. not just your finances, not just who you sleep with, not just, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the whole of your life, not just the bits that the enlightenment like you to give to God. The enlightenment likes it when we do the charity work. And so we feel comfortable doing charity work. And of course, that's completely Christian. I'm not knocking it. It's, it's completely right. What we do with our money is under the discipleship of the Lord. But that's also true of how we do politics. And so, and, and this is about what works, because what isn't working is what we're doing right now, which is this club Christianity, um, where we go to our, our Sunday club um, that we join in its activities once or twice a week, midweek. Um, and then that's pretty much the fullness of the expression of the faith. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that can still happen in, in, in any church. Uh, yeah. Those, 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 those same things. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it happens right across the body of Christ in the West because mm. the West isn't using a Benedict option. It's using a Sunday club, Kind yeah, of, I mean, I, I'd also sort of counter back and I'd say, actually, it's because I let Christ have the whole of my life that actually I don't engage politically uh, in many <laughs> ways, because actually it it, it, requires, it makes me feel viscerally sick to sign up to a political party because they both annoy me so much. Like I could, do you in vote? Terms of, do I vote? Yeah. I, I have done and it makes me feel... I, I usually have to have a shower afterwards. To make me feel <laughs> okay. Tell me, do you pay your TV licence? Say again. You pay your TV license. Uh, yes, we do. Yeah. Right. That's a political act. Yeah, I know. We can get. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's. Uh, we talk about the politics instead you, of. Uh, if we're talking about the city, get. Ten, I'm, well, I'm what's the definition? Of, what's the if definition we, of politics, Dan? Politics is the city. When we talk no. about. Well, well, politics. Politics is where the influence, the, power, the and authority. Yeah, yeah I'm talking about. I'm talking about the polis. The polis yeah, is the in the city. We're talking about what happens in the city. 
Yeah. And and what 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 governs what happens in the city is the in the use of influence, power, and authority. That's what politics is. It is where influence, power, and authority conspicuously at play. That is the definition of politics. So therefore, every time you influence someone, or every time you take authority in a situation, or every time you exert power in a situation, you have been political. We are by our nature political beings. You can no more be, you can no more not be political than you can be sexual. Like just as someone has a, sex, a, a, a sexual desire, they also have political expressions. You, you can no, the only way you cannot be political is to go and live as an ascetic on the top of a mountain and interact with nobody. Mm. Yeah, we're, speak, we're using politics in a different way. I, I'm talking about specifically, you're speaking much more broadly, and I, I agree with your definition. It's just I, I'm talking more specifically about engaging in public politics in terms of political parties, that type of thing. I can't, yeah, I, 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 because I'm a Christian, and I would argue, I would argue to people, I cannot, I cannot be a member of a political party. Uh, I would, I, I, at that level, it requires such a degree of moral and theological capitulation that I cannot be a member of a political party. If, you, if, but, but and by I refuse this, to do so. By this logic, you should give up having families because the moment you have a family, you enter into politics. But no, I think, are you talking about Dan? You're talking about political parties. I'm talking about political so parties. I'm, I'm talking. talking about I, I haven't mentioned political parties yeah. once. The only person who's mentioned political I, parties is Dan. Yeah, I haven't yeah. mentioned politics. Yeah. I have yeah. not mentioned once political parties. Yes. I didn't mention it. I talked yeah. about politics. I did not mention political parties. I said politics, and I said so, Christians so think, should be political. On on that politics, just using those influence, authority, and power. I mean, my my reaction when you're talking about so Christians will influence who gets our patronage, like is it the LGBT cafe or is it the Christian cafe down the corner? Yeah. For me, my my initial kickback is actually that sounds like a very legalistic, moralistic world that I'm not sure I want to live in. My influence is more like I'd rather I, I almost want to go to that LGBT cafe and show them that I love them, that Christ loves them, and that. There's there's a disagreement here, big disagreement with their ideology, but they're still made in the image of God, and I'd love them to know Jesus, um, and yeah, rather than this all because because it almost sounds like the way that you put it, we've got an almost there, there is a Christianized cancel culture in that, and there's there's a massive within Christianity right now. There's a massive concern about cancel culture, and it sounds like if. If we get in power, that's what we're going to do. We're going to shun those cafes exactly. and make sure everyone goes to this one. And and that's that's my kickback. So I, I well, I, 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 I'm, yeah, I, well, I, 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 I fail to understand what's what the criticism is because you can evangelize those people out on the street. You can evangelize those people at the homes. You can evangelize them even by going into their cafe, but you don't have to put money in their coffers. What you do with your what, what what you do with your money is an act of worship. Now all economy is tainted, but but to deliberately support something that is contrary to the Christian faith, when you have an alternative, which mm. is key, because sometimes we just don't have an alternative, like paying your taxes, we don't so have an alternative. Action? Sorry, so, so if you've got two action? if you've got two cafes next to one another. Mm -hmm. And one of them is supporting a, a purely, you know, one of them's overtly supporting a Christian worldview, and one of them is overtly supporting an antichrist worldview. 
and you decide to put your money into the antichrist worldview, well, that is an act of worship, but it's an act of idolatry because you have deliberately put your money into something that is against the Christian faith. Now, there are sometimes you don't get a choice. I mean, sometimes it's kind of like you have five options and they're all antichrist in the way that the thing that they support. And like, you know, like with our taxes, we none of us can choose that our taxes don't go to abortion. We don't get a choice. But I'm giving you an example where you do get a choice. And where you do get a choice means that you have a moral imperative. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if you're if, buying a coffee, you go where the coffee's better. And actually <laughs> making it or what flag they have is actually... But that's a Thatcher. That's a relevant. That's a Thatcherite way of thinking. The 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 neoconservatives are the ones that separated economics from moral choices. It's not a Christian way of thinking about it. A Christian way of thinking about it is that what I do with my money is as much an act of worship to God as what I do with my body. I think it can be. I think it is. Well, I think the, the, the nature of the world is, you know, you start getting into moral proximity and how close you are proximally to, to certain moral acts and things gets very yeah. messy very, very quickly. Um, I, I absolutely agree that how you use your money in the same way how you use your time, you know, is you're, you're responsible for that. Uh, yeah. um, and you should use that wisely in the same way you should spend your money wisely. Um, but I think, yeah, I, th- I think it can be. I don't think it always is. I think they're uh, maybe not necessarily the the best example, but uh, but uh, I can I can appreciate that in certain contexts, choosing between one and the other, one that's promoting uh, I don't know, biblical you know biblical Christian principles and one that is not, uh, you know, it would be okay. Let, 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 let's just read it through an example because I I, I feel the pushback, guys, but I I, I wanna. The, the pushback is us thinking this through, Bob. Yeah, you, no, that's you've, fine. You've that's challenged fine. us in, in a way fine. that we haven't uh, thought through this. So it's really, it's really and, good. And, but this is the point, and, and, and this is what breaks my heart, is that is that Christians, because of the fact that we haven't thought politically for nearly 300 years, have lost the ability to do so. And when we do do it, it's spasmodic. And 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 it's a and it, and we've got to rediscover about what does it mean to think about how do we create a Christian society? How do we live out a Christian society? Like if you want to go to there, there's one village in the UK where there's no crime, no poverty, and no rich people. Did you hear that? One village in the UK where there is zero crime, zero poverty, and zero rich people. It's a village run by the Bruderhof, 300 Christians living together in society. No crime, no poverty, no homelessness, and no rich. Nobody gets paid for nothing. But yet they're sitting on a multi-million pound business. Why? Because they decided to do Christian society. They decided to do the Benedict Option. But those things are the exception to the rule. I mean, you, you know, if, if, if you look at, you only have to look at, you know, to Paul's letters to the Corinthians, they're a mess. I mean, they're yeah. morally, they're, yeah, totally. they're, they're, they're a nightmare. I mean, and that's one of the things, if I had the expectation that the church would be like that village, you know, it would be, you know, it'd be very difficult to remain a Christian. It's the fact that I, you know, I have to, I have to acknowledge, and it's obvious that, you know, that, that we are flawed uh, and I'm not negating that necessarily that's a reason not to pursue uh, those mm. kinds of things. But um, I think the larger you scale up, you know, it's it's, easy, it's like it 
it's all right. There's no, there's no there's there's no crime in my house with my wife and my three kids. Uh, but if I scaled that up to a thousand people, uh, it would be much more difficult to keep that. I think with three hundred people, I'm saying it's still great. Yeah, yeah, you know? like yeah. Nice you're absolutely here. right. But I think as you you're, scale you're up, you're absolutely society, right. It becomes much more. You know, no, I, I take your point. I got a bit stuck on the in, signal there. Oh. In the wake of a crumbling, in the wake of an increasingly world, the the Benedict option is is where we're going to end up anyway. The question is, do we get there before the curve or do we get there after the curve? Yeah. If, if, if society continues to become increased, we'll end up consolidating anyway because that's the only way we'll feel safe you look at any place where christians are violently persecuted and they gather together in their own villages and towns so but we in the west have the choice to get there before the curve forces us there and if we get there before the curve forces us there then we will be in a position to act from a place of strength and we'll be able to maybe turn the situation around i often mm -hmm. I, I guess one of the fundamental differences, and this is when we come back to this masculine energy thing, is one, I'm not frightened of competition, and two, I'm not frightened of winning. And I think lots lots of Christians, because of our, if I'm not going to blame it on the effeminized, because of the absence of the masculine spirituality, are frightened of winning, and they're frightened of competition, and they're frightened of conflict. Hmm. But Christ said that perfect love, you know, that, sorry, not Christ, the Holy Spirit teaches that, that perfect love casts out fear. So where you're operating from fear, you're not operating from God's love. I'm wary of um, some of this being said out of uh, fear or lack of masculinity simply because, um, well, I'm, I'm a bloke and masculine and I enjoy competition and winning as much as the next bloke who's had three older brothers kick his butt. Do so, you want the church to win? Yeah, of course. Um, 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 but the winning, though... So what are you going to do to... No, I won't, Phil, you said I could ask you questions. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah what, please what do. You, what do you want to do to see the church win, bro? And this is fact, that, that's a really good question. I appreciate you asking it. Against jihadis. Against jihadis. Well, that, that's, that's some of where I'm talking about the sort of laying down our lives. And I think some of the things you're talking about before I answer your question, I'm going to dodge it slightly, is, is we're in a society where, so I, I would say the problem's slightly different from enlightenment thinking and all that. I would say we're so hyper-individualistic about what I can get from the church and what the church can do for me that we've lost any sense of community and then this whole idea of power is so foreign to us mm -hmm. uh, because we, we just don't have that sense of I'm part of a body that's part of a... a that local church down the road is the same part is, is a different part of the same body, but they're mm -hmm. the body nonetheless. And, and we've become so fragmented. So I, there's a lot of stuff that I, I totally agree with in the sense that there needs to be some sort of coming together, whether that looks like denominational lines are moot or, or whatever. So that there's that aspect. What I want to see in the church being victorious would look like that. They will know us by our unity. They'll know us by our love. Amen whether that then transmits to this idea of power that you're talking about, this is where I'm not so sure that's what victory looks like. And, um, and so where, where the tension I'm trying to wrestle with at the moment is, is what it looks like to, 
to conquer as Christ did, to have power as Christ did, isn't this power of the sword. Uh, the sword comes from his mouth in Revelation. It's his word. It's, it's victorious through his uh, word. Uh, word. Yes, there's blood, but it's not necessarily his. <laughs> there's not necessarily the enemy's blood. Like it's there before the battles even started. So we, Can I ask you a question? Do, what, yeah. what do, you, do you think Christ was a pacifist? So I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm still reading on that. I'm not sure. I think I think there's elements of pacifism what, 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 that I what can did, get from the what gospel. Did, what, I mean, and, and just so you guys, like one of the, the champions and the fathers of the modern church, C.S. Lewis, mm. is firmly on my side on this question. Mm. Like, go and read his essay, Men Without Chests. Okay. Like, so, uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis lampoons pacifism. He sees it as a moral evil. Yeah. So I, I, guess, I guess where I'd be like, I, I'm not sure Christ is, because judgment's violent. <laughs> like, yes. I, I do believe what did he do in the temple? Judgment. Well, he flipped, he flipped tables so that there, there is so it is okay in hurting birds. Did he so, did he did he make did he make a whip? Yeah, it's a whip or a weapon. One. Yeah. It's a whip a weapon. Well, it brings it brings violence to the backs of people if it's used on them. So so so, it, so we agreed it's a weapon. Whether it was used on people is it? You sound like an American. Now you're going to start saying it's the equivalent of an AK-47. <laughs> well, know, I mean, the, it, the reality it, it, is no one who looks at the Christ actions in the temple, can, no one sensibly can come to the conclusion that he was a pacifist. So well, I, don't, I, I would yeah. recommend reading something like Stanley Harawas, I think, before you make... I've read, I've read yeah, so. I've read Naming the Silences. I, I've read Stanley Howarass. I know his position. Yeah. And I, there's so a lot I there's a lot in Stanley Howarass that I actually really like and agree with. Like there there's a lot that I really love about the Bruderhof. The one thing that I don't like the, about the Bruderhof and the one thing I don't like about Stanley Howarass is they're both pacifists. I think that I think there's a real tension because I um let me I'll lay my cards on the table. There are there are aspects of 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 um of, of pacifism that are I, I think are, are respectful. I think that that often people who are consider themselves anti-pacifists or you know who, who perhaps love violence a little bit too much are often willing to um engage in violence or support violence too quickly at the expense yes, when, totally. when we, we actually what we could do is step back and resolve things peace, peacefully yeah completely on the flip side there are people who are pacifists who i think often in the messy world messy, messy simple world we live in violence sometimes is obligatory and actually they cause actually what when they when they don't engage in violence to defend the oppressed uh etc uh, in certain situations they they do they they engage in in wrong behavior something they uh well they they um it's the the, the absence of, of, of what, what they should they should do and and so there, there there needs to be some again it's not like most things is a middle road is actually yeah. i i think i'm a middle road person is i think where 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 problems can be resolved peacefully they should be resolved peacefully and you should only utilize violence when you've exhausted all of you know going back to augustine when you've exhausted you know all other peaceful options uh, and in the pursuit of something good, that you can only pursue that good uh, by by engaging in, by engaging in violence. Um, you know, in fact, look, if I'm out for a walk and someone attacks my wife, 
I'm going to knock them out. Mm. Uh, so what uh, happens uh, if it's your brother's wife? Well, no, I try and resolve it. I try and resolve it peacefully no. first. But, but, but here's here's Christian, my logic, Christian right? Violence, because the thing, is, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, and and because I'm not speaking to two pacifists here, I can tell that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to two people who are on the same page as me. Um, it's just to what you know. It, we're more talking about degrees, yeah. rather than. The, whether there's a, a um, an a priori right or wrong about this, we're talking about. We're, we both agree that there's a, a duty here, but the question is, how do we interpret the duty? And here's my logic, right? We're, we're called to love one another, mm -hmm. and to love and to serve one another. So when we see a brother or sister who um, who needs food, if we're if we're good Christian souls, we'll give them food. When we see a brother or sister who needs a home, if we're good Christian souls, we'll give him home. When we see a brother or sister who needs a drink, if we're good Christian souls, we'll give him a drink. But what happens if the brother or sister needs security and freedom? Are we willing to give him security and freedom? Are we willing to do the things that are necessary so that he can have security and freedom? Now, to come to the Phil's point, which I think is a very noble one, is this idea of the theology of martyrdom. I, I think absolutely we should be laying down our lives, but you can also lay down your life as a dutiful soldier in a just cause, and that's mm. still laying down your life. Mm. You know, it's not that you have to lay down. I mean, I, I'm not knocking anyone who's laid down their life um, without using violence. The, the, these are martyrs and you know that they're greater than I am, and, and we, we should honor the martyrs. But you can also still be a martyr whilst going into battle if you're fighting for the good of the church. I think one of the interesting things where you're pushing us to think about, yeah, which in the West we're very privileged in the sense that we don't have, we don't very rarely do we have to think about the use of violence to resolve an issue. And and so if we were in the problem is you know. If you're in Afghanistan or uh, Somalia or uh, uh, China or you, know, you think of any like Nigeria, you can think of any all these places, Congo, South Sudan, you know, all these places you can think of where you have Christians uh, who are uh, experienced violence. We don't have to we don't have to consider those things. We don't have to consider that those those questions because we're very, we can just sit back and pontificate about, oh, as a Christian, what do we do? But what do yeah. you do if you're in Nigeria and your village is being attacked by jihadists? What do you do? What's the right thing? What is the Christian thing to do in that situation? To defend your neighbour. But we don't, and this is a bit, we have to have a consistent ethic and theology, don't we? That, that, yeah. And, and I think we don't in the West, we don't think about. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of hypocrisy um, coming from a lot of Christians on this question. And, and this is not aimed at you, Dan. It's not aimed at you, Phil. So don't hear it as me aiming at it, right? For instance, the Pope will advocate pacifism and peace, but yet has an entire militia, personal militia, the Swiss Guard, to protect him, as well as bodyguards also armed to protect him. You know, there's a lot of Christians who will say things like, you know, um, you, that, that using violence is wrong, but will then, as Dan, as Dan has said, um, will use violence to defend their own family. 
And I thoroughly think that those people are right to defend their own family. But if we are saying that we can use violence to defend our own family, then that means we cannot say it is wrong, A, for other Christians to fight to defend themselves if they're being attacked, and B, um, we've got to remember that Christ said that those who are his followers are his family, and that means that they're our family as well. You know, when those Nigerian Christians are being attacked, that is our family. And so this comes back to this, because this is, if you remember where this, this conversation sort of branched off from, it branched off from the question about politics, you know, about Christians getting involved in politics, because, you know, state violence is politics through another means. Mm. And that's why the state in this country is using the police to silence people who are against the transgender ideology. It's using the police to intimidate people who um, preach the gospel. It is using the police. It, it's politics by other means, you know? And, and I think that we Christians need to accept that this is the world we live in. We, we have no problem accepting it when we come to spending our money. We've got no problem accepting it when we come to buying a house. Well, this is just another part of life, another part of reality that we have to wrestle with as Christians and do discipleship in as Christians in the knowledge that we can give political devotion to God in the same way that we can give spiritual devotions to God. You can serve God in politics like you can serve God by reading your Bible and praying. Yeah. And there are Christians doing that. And I think there's there's definitely something. I, I mean, Dan and I have been mates for a long time. So in, in many ways, there's, there's things that we are quite similar on. And on that middle road, politically speaking, I, I too would struggle to get so involved in politics it meant signing the dotted line for a for a party and i know you haven't mentioned that bob but that's that's kind of what comes to mind when we collectively group that's kind of where in the way that our structures are set up if if the christian uh world <laughs> in the uk yeah. was yeah. able to come together there would be no doubt a christian party there is a christian party They're and the problem christian is, people's alliance so, something like that yeah and, and and there's there's things in there that within us christians we disagree with where christ is calling us to walk and how that plays out in our politic I mean, but i think disgusting. i think that i think that often christians are making the perfect the enemy of the good like well, we just because right. yeah. yeah yeah but but the point is life is messy mm. we all know that as uh, you know as mature adults we know life is messy so why, like, this goes back to Mark Driscoll, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there was a massive overreaction to Mark Driscoll, at least from what I understood of what he did. He did some things that were wrong. I think he, he needed to be um, castrated. I, need, I think he needed to have his authority reduced. I, need, I think he needed to have people put over the top of him. But I don't think Mars Hill Church needed to be destroyed. I think the problem with Christians is that we have this fantasy you know that that somehow we can do things perfectly and we can't so it's a question of how close to the perfect that we can get and if that means that we set up a political party which to come to dan's point i haven't mentioned political parties yeah, up until yeah, now yeah. 
Yeah. But I would I I am I'm a big supporter of the Christian People's Alliance. I think Christians should have a political party. Um and and yes, that gets messy. You're absolutely right to be conscious of the messiness that comes with that. But that isn't a reason not to do it. Because charity work is messy. When you when you start looking into the how, how the deep ways that charities work and you yeah. know how yeah, much money true. are they spending on advertising for instance yeah. yeah and does the money actually go to the people how much money is wasted having specialists fly around places and not actually do anything mm -hmm. you know like when you look deep into charities it's messy but we don't chuck the whole project of doing arms and good works in the bin because charities are messy businesses Mm. Do we? Mm. So why should we do that with anything else? The, the Christians People Alliance is quite an interesting one. Just just to go back to Mark, just quickly, I recommend listening to uh, his new podcast out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, mm. or Mark just if I'm one of the Mars, Mars, Hill. Mars Hill. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's that's well worth worth listening to um, in regards to the specifics and things involved. Uh, but um, I mean, regards to that, how would that work? So. It, in, in the sense of you think you've got quite a lot of, there's quite a few christians from what i understand in in a lot of the main christian parties so you, what you'd have to first do i'm assuming you'd have to lose power in the pursuit to try and gain it wouldn't you because i imagine if if, if, we're, if we were going to say look well actually let's 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 try and put in a plan into place right all, all the christians in major political parties to join the christian people's alliance um but you would have to lose power before you gain it it seems I, I don't know. I don't actually want to get into this too much because it actually gets quite messy. Quite. But it would seem it would seem quite. Where, where, where I mean, the, I'll answer that last point, and then you guys take the conversation um, wherever you want it to go. Yeah. You know, like we'll, we'll, we'll look at some of the comments in a moment. There's some interesting ones, but yeah, you go for it. Okay. So, so my my point is that. Um, yeah, well, there's loads of Christians who are in the mainstream political parties are uh, completely ineffective because they're not following a Christian political ideology. What they're following is they're Christians, but they are Christians who have bought into secular liberal or secular progressive or secular nationalist ideologies. And, and those are not rooted in Christian doctrines and Christian values. And so even though we've got lots of Christians in the political parties, they hardly do anything for the church because their ideology isn't Christian. Their worldview politically isn't Christian. But can they? So if you look at the example of Tim Fallon with the Liberal Democrats. Perfect example. Yeah, perfect example. Is, is, is someone who actually in, in many ways tr attempted to do that but was was unable to do so so how like for me it seems that given the where we are culturally and politically in this country as a minority is if we, uh, how do we um trying to pursue p political power in that way seems like a it's, it's, to me it seems like a like a dead end it'd be very difficult to get off the ground it's a dead end unless we consolidate geographically like, think about it this way, guys, right? How, how, what percentage do Muslims make up in this society? Uh, it's about between, about 3%. I think it's between 3 and 5%. Yeah. Just, like. just, just under 4%. Would you agree that they are have able to influence disproportionately our culture, society, and politics um, 
given the fact that they're only 4%. Yes. Why do you think that is? It's because they're geographically consolidated. Yeah, but that that's all tied in, isn't it, with uh, a lot of it is to immigration and where do people go? You go with your yeah, friends, but family, it, it, people are already here. So it, it's... If that 4%... If with Christians, I think, probably make up about 10% of British society. Like, I mean, actual believing Christians, I think, probably make up about 10% of British society. Hmm. I wish I wish it was. No, I, I, I genuinely <laughs> believe it does. I genuinely believe it does. Um, and I think that the, the, the next year, it's going to be for the first time in over a thousand years that Christians end up being a mind on paper, a minority in this country, because on paper, at least, we're still a a, a simple majority, but um, if not an absolute majority. But the but the the if you took that four if you took that ten percent and you consolidated it geographically, it would be an economic powerhouse, a political powerhouse, a cultural powerhouse. Muslims influence on our society is because even though they're only 4%, they're 4% tightly consolidated. Yeah. So what are you suggesting? That that's the trick a... that the church has lost. We're not thinking about these issues. Well, what do we pick do? It, do we yeah, pick we should, a town we should, or city we should consolidate say, geographically. Right, let's, let's, all, let's all move there. That's, is that what you, gen you generally think that? I, I think I think I think that no, we, I think we should think about it in terms of constituencies, not towns and cities and villages, but constituencies, and where there is already a higher proportion of of Christians, because you can always trace out the Bible Belt in every town and city. You know, like there was one in my hometown. I don't know where you guys live, but there'll probably be one in yours. You just go and look at where all the churches are, because that's where all the most of the Christians are, like. And, and then you just go and sort of consolidate into those areas just naturally as, as that phase of your life allows you to, you consolidate geographically. Is that so, yeah, I mean, it's it so organic. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be organic. Really, planet. Yeah. There's some interesting thoughts in there. I think it still comes down to what I was saying before is that we don't have that kind of cult community communal culture and i think i'm trying to trying to work out yeah. how how that can be brought about and it's something that i try to do both through my work but also through when i preach is that the the, the family of god the church of god is is something um, a massive part of the gospel that has been missed out in probably the last several decades of gospel preaching where it's about you and your individual choice there's something about church and joining it to be discipled later on, but that's not really about salvation. And, and while being in a church doesn't say you want to, don't want to go down that rabbit hole. It's there's, there's an aspect of the gospel of being part of the family of God that we're missing in the West. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, and I think once you've got that idea that as you were talking about, like the Nigerian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted are part of our body, a part of our family. Amen. The, the church in Afghanistan, that, that is part of our family. The, the, the unknowns in China who have been underground for, for decades, though we, we don't have that view. We have a charity that talks about persecuted church, but they might get a 
10 minute slot on a Sunday. Uh, we don't have that kind of uh, corporeal <laughs> reaction. Yeah. And, to, and it's to... because it's because we've taken the enlightenment into the church rather yeah. than take the church into the enlightenment. Mm. What, what, what I mean, again, I can't stress to you enough how the enlightenment changed everything. Like, Do you have any resources on that? Just to like dig further into that, because it's so... not not off the top of my head, bro. To be honest, okay. and and the reason is that like I'm sitting on learning that I've already done, and right. I've long since forgotten the books that I read to do it. Yeah, that but makes sense. but the but the Enlightenment changed so much. Um, it replaced it replaced epistemologically epistemologically. Um, revelation with reason it replaced the idea of religious identity with national identity it mm. replaced the idea of um, the body of Christ the corporate identity with the individual identity it it, 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 it emphasized reason above above virtually everything until mm. Schleiermacher mm. came along and did a pushback um, and you know it, it it emphasized it emphasized therefore science and empiricism um it's why we live in a scientific paradigm today that's the the, the worldview through which people think or yeah. try to think you know if the scientists say it true then therefore it's true it's like a, a like a trump's card that you play well the scientists say um you know and and i mean and, un and we're undergoing another change right now right in in our lifetime which is that because of the traumas of world war one and world war two Culturally, we're trying to the, the elites are trying to move us away from national identities to individual identities, which is what you're talking about, Phil. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've just sucked all of this into the church. We've mm -hmm. just sucked it all into the church because uh, the Reformation Civil War was devastating, and it traumatized the church and paralyzed the church because the church didn't know how to stop the conflict. And so it came up with new ways of organizing everything so that we could never go back to the religious wars of the Reformation. And, and, and that's where our hesitancy comes from about the idea of Christians being political. Because we live in a world that was built out of a desire to never allow politics to be governed by religion because of the wars that it creates and the conflict that it creates. Mm. And instead, people decided to fight about their national identities hmm. instead. And now we're yeah. fighting culture wars based on the God of the self. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, some, there's loads of stuff that, that's in there. I'm aware of, um, of time. We barely touched on some of the stuff with the speech corner, but this has been really fascinating. Rob, just really appreciate your, your thoughts on it and, and sort of challenging, challenging us to think this through. Um, just I hope I've, looking... I hope I've not, I've no hope. I've, I hope I've not like, I hope I've not uh, offended you guys. Oh, no, 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 far from it. You, you, watch, watch the, watch our channel with Jay Smith and then you'll, you'll see what's happening here. Like, okay. Dan, Dan, offended, Bob. Don't worry, man. Yeah, we're, right, we're, we're all right. good. I've got thick skin. I like. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. I can tell. But I want to win you over to my ideas. I don't want to. I, don't, I want to win the person. You know, it's kind of like I don't. I don't want to win the argument. I want to win you guys over to the way that I'm thinking. You know, absolutely. There's, but, yeah, what? and just to sort of say on on that, there there is stuff that 
I, I can hear there there is truth within it. There's just how what that then how that plays out, and yeah. there there is still just rest, wrestling. And there's some comments in here clearly re wrestling with it as well. Just the kind of um, well, as you find those comments, I'll, I'll just say that that's what yeah. we've got to work out with fear and trembling as a people. We've mm -hmm. got to work yeah. that out in conversation amongst ourselves. That's where the debate between me and Dan becomes useful because we've got to delineate what are the lines of a Christian politique? What does political devotion to Yahweh actually look like? And, and that is part of discipleship, is working yeah. that out with fear and trembling. But what we shouldn't do, and, and, and I'm adamant we shouldn't do this, is rule out the idea that Christianity impacts politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going back, I think it's in Jeremiah, isn't it, about how uh, the people have got a good for the city. Uh, there is something mm. about that Christianity should bring something that is good for the polis, for the city. Yeah. Um, uh, whether it's always interpreted as that is a different thing. But, uh, yeah. um, but um, you know, that should be the, the goal is to, um, you know, to contribute something good. Um, mm. I, I, I guess what would be interesting for me is um, just I know I'm not sure how long we've got you for, but maybe at least for sort of the next sort of 10 minutes or something, if we could got me for another 25 minutes. Cool. Um, is is as much I, I, I could keep talking about because it, it is fascinating and it's nice as uh, I said, it's very difficult. I mean, what, just very quickly, but it's difficult to even find people within the church to have conversations like this. Is I have to have mm. a podcast to find. Mm to speak to someone, to have things that I'm in, ideas I'm interested in. And that's one of the issues with the church is it's actually very difficult for Christians to even find people to have conversations, to even think about this kind of thing, because there's I no you, avenue for it. I know, I know you, I know you want to move the conversation onto something else. Yeah. So let me, let me have my final word on this go and then it. you take it where you want to go. You, you talk about the polis, the good of the city. Uh, and to do something that is good for the city. And we, that means that we've got to accept how the city works, i.e. influence, power and authority are conspicuously at play. But I would also point out that the scriptures teach us to do good to all men, but especially those in the house of faith. And the ultimate telos of any Christian politique is the good of the body of Christ. That's my final word. We'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there we'll, with your, your final word yeah. on that on that section. Um, trying to, on, just trying to find some comments. I, I'm just wanting to reach out to the to the chat. So thank you for for all your comments. Uh, there's there's so many here. I'm not used to scrolling them through and bringing them into the conversation. <laughs> so Bob, Bob, you've done your job and uh, brought brought the crowd. So I really you've appreciate brought people that. here. There's people actually listening. <laughs> how, how many people? How many people are actually watching? Well, Streamyard says there's 30, but who knows? It can be a bit delayed as to how many that we've we've had sort of 30 to 40 uh yeah. throughout this time so um th there is a direct question here but how good is your bible reference it should be pretty good if you're debating muslims um just if you uh remember your sermon on the mount all i know from matthew 5 where would that be matthew it's the sermon on the mount he's talking about the the turning of the cheek bit there we go yeah that sounds about right so my answer to that is that if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's full of the use of hyperbole. Um, and and hyper Christ uses hyperbole all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out, because it's better to enter into heaven 
maimed than it is to enter into hell whole. Um, you know, he he uses hyperbole all the way through. It's one of his favorite teaching techniques. You know, he who does not hate mother or father is not worthy of me, as if Christ would command you to hate your mother and father when the commandments command you to honor your mother and father. Mm -hmm. It's the use of hyperbole. And so Christ saying, you know, if he strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, to, strikes you on your left cheek, turn to him your right, or whichever way he did it. It's hyperbole because Christ himself at his own trial when the Roman centurion, not the Roman centurion, when the, the, the temple guard struck him on the face, he didn't turn the other cheek. He challenged him and said, why do you strike me? Hmm. So if Christ was meaning it literally, we have a perfect point in the scriptures where Christ could have, and he turned the other cheek. But the scriptures hmm. don't say that. The scriptures say he challenged them by going, why do you strike me? If I've done something wrong, point it out. If I've said something wrong, tell me what I've done. If you can't tell me what I've done wrong, why have you hit me? So he didn't do the whole turn the other cheek because mm. he wasn't teaching it as a literal thing. What he's talking about is not operating from a place of revenge, which is an essential part of Christian politics, which maybe speaks to what Dan was talking about of, of you know, vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. And this is you're using politics to get vengeance in your own way. Well, the whole point of Christian politics is it's discipled by Jesus, which means you don't operate from a place of vengeance. And that's what Christ is teaching in that um, section in Matthew. Don't operate from anger. Don't operate from vengeance. Operate from love. Operate from hope operate from faith i love that <laughs> i've actually never connected the turn the other cheek with that part of um the gospel where jesus challenges him that, that that's really helpful um there's another question just just to sort of close this one from from the questions in the chat i'm sorry if we haven't got to others um but this one's quite interesting so where we're talking about church and state and maybe i don't know if it's a succinct answer but i guess it's one to think through it how, how how does this how do you see in the when the church has power and you've got another country in in the sense like north korea is that a church or governmental or like where do you stand in on a state level if the church is in power yeah it depends whether the the state that we're talking about is functional or not so for instance in the case of north korea i mean you've got a title in its state there and i think it needs to be tackled at a state level but in places like in places like you know Iraq, where ISIS came in, collapsed, mm. well, the church in Assyria didn't have a state to go to because the state collapsed, and mm. so the the church in Assyria had to organise its own defence force. And under those circumstances, my attitude is: if the local church is forced to defend itself the international church is obliged to help them. Interesting. That's, that's a whole, that's a really interesting aspect. I, I can't even speak anything on that because maybe I should have thought through, but I haven't yet. <laughs> so that's a re but really, I, I think, really helpful. But I think there are legal ways that that can be done mm. that we've never explored as Christians because we don't even think about these things. Like mm. there are legal ways. Like, so for example, mercenaries, are legal legal organizations you know you can set up a mercenary business 
Right. If you set up a mercenary business with a, you know, I don't know, you'd have to look into the legalities of it. I don't know. Yeah. But is it possible? It might not be, but is it possible to set up a mercenary organization that works only in defense and go and specializes in protecting religious communities that are persecuted and makes a point of going and protecting persecuted Christians in war zones where the state has collapsed? Is that a possible thing that we could do? Hungary, for instance, has a president who's very sympathetic to persecuted Christians, set up an entire department to help persecuted Christians. So everybody go on holiday to Hungary and spend your money there. Um, like, could, could that government set up something like the French Foreign Legion, you know, where, which is a, a regiment within the French army? Could the Hungarian army set up a international legion that recruits Christians from around the world that then as a state, it sends into countries and intervenes like France does in Mali and, you know, Britain has done in, you know, other parts of the world. Yeah. And, and Hungary goes, right, well, we're operating as a state. We've got this international legionary force. We're going to send it in to places where Christians are being persecuted. Uh, it's a legal way of doing it. It, it, it becomes very yeah. blurred very quickly because then you start thinking about, okay, well, what... Let's look at um, you know other 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 people. So um, everyone's got the image image of day. We're all made in the image of God. Valuable. Yeah. Why? You know, what, yeah. The, the logical extension is well. Okay. Well, we've got a we've got a mercenary set up to protect religious communities. But okay. Well, what about um, other religious groups who are minorities? Do we need to go and protect them? Do we need to start going to yeah. Burma? Uh, and uh, do we need to start going to uh, uh pakistan or india or uh you know uh, are you aware that in all of those countries you've just mentioned christians are being persecuted yes yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. what i did but i'm saying that there are other minorities as well uh, yeah so so let me let me address that because it's a totally fair question that, that one of the ways that the the christian church converted the roman world is that we organized our own community to look after our own needs but when we did that we did it in such a way that we had an abundance. Mm. So not only could we look after our own widows, but we were able to look after the widows of the non-believer as well. Not only were we able to look after our own orphans, but we were able to look after the orphans of others. Mm. If we organize as Christians ourselves to take care of the needs of our own community and do it properly, we will quickly find ourselves with an abundance by which we will bless our neighbors and mm. can bless our neighbors but if you don't if you can't look after your own poor you're not going to be able to help the poor of others mm. and and one of the big problems with the church uh, particularly the big civic churches like the anglican church the catholic church the orthodox church is that they uh, not so much the orthodox but certainly the anglicans and catholics they operate like an ngo they, they, they more operate like a charity than they operate like a people of God. Mm. Um, and if you turn the church into an NGO that's just for helping everyone but your own, then your own quickly leave. And that's what's happening to the Anglican and the Catholic churches. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah I, mean, well. <laughs> I, say, I can't remember the name of the Roman. Um, it was, yeah, I can't remember the quote. It was something about... Um, 
Roman government. The churches, kind of the, the, the Galileans are, you know, feeding, not only are they feeding their own poor, but they're feeding uh, our own poor yeah, as well. the Roman emperor, um, exactly. It was, yeah. the, it was the apostate emperor. The apost just, just in the... Just, just in the, the apostate. Yeah. Yeah. He was the apostate, and he wanted to revive paganism. But by yeah. this point, the horse had bolted. And what I'm saying is we as Christians need to organize. You know, how do we, what does it look like, this Christian power thing? Organize as a people, organize to meet the needs of the people. And when I say the people, I mean the church, the body of Christ, the Christians. When you do that, you'll then be in a place to bless the neighbors of those Christians. Do good to all, but especially those in the house of faith. Yeah, I think one one of the one of the complications. I'll say one more. Say I think one of the complications is that one of the the things that made it easier to function like that in, in under the Roman Empire is you had you're on the opposite auspices of one church. The road. The, yeah. The, uh, yeah. Uh, whereas whereas now we all disagree with the people. We'll, yeah. All the churches. You know, you might you might get churches together once a month or something, but other than that, we all we're all very separate. Um, yeah. And and so. It's very difficult when we talk about the Christian community. I don't think a lot of us, as I said, we don't even necessarily think of ourselves. We think of our, our denomination, maybe. Yeah, we don't think yeah, absolutely of ourselves right. as necessarily as something of a, as, a, as a larger body made up of all these different parts. You think, oh, they believe that, or we, no, no. And you, ha and you lack sympathy because it, it quickly becomes this in-group, out-group. I've got sympathy for people within the group, my denomination. People without the group, well, the next group, well, well they're they're kind of Christians, but they're not. They don't believe the same things as us, and then yeah. everyone else yeah. outside of it. And all their competition, that's, that's, yeah, all competition. It's one. It's that's, and, that's one of the challenges you would have. You can't even feed. And, and, and for me, the, the the solution is really simple: stop thinking denominationally. Mm. Mm. Stop thinking denominationally. It's really that easy. It's not hard. Think about. I I don't think of you. I don't. I don't I'm not even bothered what denomination you belong to. And same with you, Phil. I just I just see Christians, disciples mm -hmm. of my Lord. And and that is enough for me. That's mm -hmm. all I care about. Mm -hmm. Like and and so and 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 that means that all the rights that a Christian has over me, you have over me, and all the responsibilities that that I can expect from you, I would expect from you. Mm -hmm. You know? Um and, and I think we need to think that stop thinking like a denomination and, and stop thinking like an institution. Not, I'm, ag I'm not against institutions. They're, they're, they're what societies create, but think at the most basic level that we are the people of God and go from there. We haven't talked about anything that I thought we were talking about, but it's been really good fun. <laughs> uh, but I do want to quickly get while we've got you for five, 10 minutes before you go, yeah. just to quickly go through some of the things uh, me and Phil both know of you from speakers corner. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd just be interested. There's lots of stuff I don't know about. You seem like this sort of figure I've heard about and I see on YouTube, but no one, we don't know much too much about you, and I'm sure there are reasons for that. Um, why did you first start going to Speaker's Corner? Um, I first went to Speaker's Corner because Jay Smith introduced me to it. I I was uh, I was attending a project run by a church whilst I was at university, an evangelistic missionary outreach for students in London. Jay was a guest speaker. I had been doing evangelism since I converted to our Lord as a youth uh, to Muslims. And then Jay came and did this talk on Islam and it was like, whoa, someone like me. And I was just enthralled by Jay. Um, and he told me about this place that he did his debates and I went down there and I found it this energetic, 
magnetic place. I loved it. And so every time I came to London, I would go to Speaker's Corner to see my hero, Jay, um, and to enjoy the debate, the discussion at Speaker's Corner. And then, you know, as I say, I went off the rails in my faith. Um, I went to Colombia um, and then I came back and my life was altogether more serious upon coming back because of what had happened to my mum. And I had to think seriously about my life. And when I did that, I started to see, think seriously about my vocation. And that process of prayer and reflection led me to come to London. And since I was in London and I was thinking about being a missionary, um, I, I decided, well, whilst I'm here, I might as well get back involved with Jay. So I found him out again. And then I went to one of his meetings and he told me that he was leaving the next week. Um, and then he left. And the first week that he left was my first week at the corner. Um, and so it's kind of like tag. And one loud voice replaced another loud voice. And the Dawa team have been crying ever since. <laughs> You're demolishing all their arguments. <laughs> all that language of uh, of conflict that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. They, they, they are. They are, honestly, intellectually, the Dai at the corner are beaten. Hmm. The problem is, the problem is that more Muslims have imbibed their Dawah script than Christians have imbibed the responses. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we as Christians need to take apologetics far more seriously. It needs to mm. be in it needs to be in, there needs to be an apologetic in every sermon. It needs to be in every fellowship at the very least, so that our people are imbibing how to defend the faith and give a hope for the an give an answer for the hope that they have. Yeah. I think we have um, talked a bit about apologetics and I think I'll be interested. What do you mean when you say apologetics? Because there's, there's a flavor of apologetics that I'm, I'm wary of. So how, how would you define beyond the sort of give, a, give an answer? If I say doing, if you're going to recommend like doing apologetics in a church in the UK, what do you mean by that? What would be on that course? Yeah, so apologetics is defense and polemics is offense. So the scriptures tell us that we should give an answer for the hope that we have. And the, the word that's translated as answer there is apologia, which is mm. where we get the word apologetics from. But then the scriptures also tell us to demolish every lofty thought that that holds itself up against the, the lordship of Christ. And that's polemics. Mm. So apologetics would be if someone said to you, why do you believe, you know, the Bible's been corrupted um, it's not the original Injil. So an apologetic to that would be, well, we've got manuscript evidence. We've got quotations from the church fathers. Um, these go right back all the way, you know, to the first century, which obviously means that the ori originals have to go back even before that. Uh, sorry, the second century, so that the originals therefore have to go back into the first century. That's an apologetic. But a polemic would then be, well, you, you say that there's this, um, Muslim Injil that was given 2,000 years ago, why is it no one's heard about it? Why is it no one's quoted it? Why does no one reference it? Why do none of the church fathers quote it and argue against it like they do everybody else? Mm. They knew about the Ebionites. If the Ebionites were the first Muslims, why aren't they arguing against their literature and talking about their Injil? Well, they don't because it never exists. So an mm. apologetic is defense, 
polemic is offense and both are, are given in scripture that's really helpful i mean even just the the fact that when you say apologetics you're going straight into the defense of, of scripture and, and its corruptions and and things like that and i suppose one of the advantages of evangelizing muslims is they already believe in god you don't need to worry about kalam or like contingency or anything like that yeah. um when i know obviously your focus is islam but there are other views around the park and there are mm -hmm. debates you've had with people um, on Soko films and I recommend people watch those. Just to go a little bit further then on that. So we've got defense of, of biblical um, side of things. What kind of other aspects would, would prepare a Christian well uh, for facing some of the ideologies, both of Islam, but also other things that seem to be encroaching on, on Christianity and, and winning us out of there that would fit on some sort of apologetics tray for, for if people. I, if, if I was to give you a syllabus of questions that you need to go away and be able to answer, it's this. One, does where, where does Jesus call himself God? Two, um, how would you explain the Trinity biblically? Three, how would you explain the Trinity historically? Because those are two separate movements. Four. Um, how, how would you, how do you understand the incarnation? That's really important. Because mm -hmm. most attacks against the Trinity are actually just misunderstandings of the implications of the incarnation. Okay. Five. Um, and coming back to what we've been talking about, what is a Christian understanding of gender? What is a Christian understanding of the body? What is a Christian understanding of um, the purpose of politics and government? Um, what a, you know? What happened on the cross is is something that's that's really important to know. Mm. Um, and 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 all of this, all of this has to be informed by a knowledge of the history. Like your apologetics are going to be so much better if you've got a handle of the history. Mm. One of the great problems um, with Christians who are doing apologetics, particularly from the Reformed background, Protestant churches, not necessarily the historically Reformed churches, but more of the new churches, is that they that, that for a lot of them there isn't an appreciation of history mm -hmm. and, and that lets them down mm -hmm. in a massive way um so th those are a bunch of questions that every christian needs to know an answer to mm. we, we should That's get you up. back on to uh fire those questions at this. us at us <laughs> and see how we do and then uh, you give can, you uh, and then, give you then some you prep can, if you like then, we do a session yeah and then, I we, mean, and, then we, and then you can track you can you can you can look for the gaps and uh and see see how we get on let's do it yeah I, i'm I would quietly confident i'm quietly confident i'll be i'll be okay on, on, on most of them i mean is, is there, are there many things more that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get around i'm, to? I'm aware of the time so we'll honor that and um we'll, we'll just have to get you on again i've really i've really enjoyed it i've really enjoyed it so yeah, you know, we've enjoyed having you too you're you know you're, you're a good egg you're what they call a good egg boss and, <laughs> Thanks uh, very much. and um you're, you're a good thinker and we, we as we said before we came online we, we really value the work that you do it really is important uh, not only for the people who hear you at speakers corner but the people who you view and listen to you on youtube as well and we, we do genuinely 
value and support what what, what you do, even if Thanks. we may have dis, you know, disagreements and yeah. some other things, which is, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, totally you know how you know how you sharp you know sharpen yourself up and um, and and think about new ideas and things and test. So it's, it's been uh, it's, 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 it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure to speak with you guys you know it's, it's it gives me encouragement great encouragement whenever I meet brothers that that don't feel wet you know like they, they, there's some substance to them do you know what I'm saying it's kind of like there's, there's, there's some there's some there's some masculine energy there it gives me hope it gives me hope and <laughs> on, on the YouTube Bob of speakers corners they're not wet. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. We're, yeah. we're moving off in the world. We're not. We're not. Uh, yeah, we're not accredited. Accredited by Bob of Speaker's Corner. <laughs> Masculine. Like no, but seriously, like it's been a real pleasure to speak with you guys. Um, I've enjoyed the back and forth. I've enjoyed the opportunity to explore ideas in a way that is friendly, but not uh, like a, a a walkover kind of. Uh, softball question kind of way but it's been really nice to have a, a genuine interested conversation about really important questions and and thank you for that um and with your permission uh, i'll i'll put this on my channel and yeah. link to your channel um is that all right with you guys absolutely, yeah, absolutely. yeah i'll probably do it next week so that people come and and find your channel That's uh, great we appreciate it. we got we got we can do a competition with you and Jay. So when Jay did that with our last video, we got a hundred subs. So we'll see, we'll see what you. Uh, I will. I, I guarantee I'll get you more than more than a hundred subs. Guys, good. if you're watching this, if you're watching this, I, I'm I'm asking you. So just so that I get some bragging rights over Jay, please subscribe <laughs> to these guys' channel. Uh, so that I get a, a bragging right over Jay. That would be great. We'll, we'll take it. We'll take any subs you're willing yeah, to yeah, get. Yeah. <laughs> I'll close up and um, if you need to disappear, feel free to, but we'll, we'll go offline in a second. Um, thank you. Just, just a big shout out to those who support the channel financially on Patreon. You can find that patreon.com critical witness. Uh, we've been a little bit uh, low on the uh, streams of August because it's August. And that's what happens in the UK. Um, we're hoping to get a couple more, uh, streams going next month to a month at the, at the bare minimum and uh, we've got some guests that we're in contact with and just confirming dates so watch this space subscribe follow us on twitter we'll get it out on, on facebook all the socials and uh, to those of you who have chatted to us thank you so much sorry we haven't been able to interact with you as much as you like but bob's just so interesting we're just listening to him as probably you were as well so thanks again do subscribe do share do do what you can to, to grow this channel if you've enjoyed it. Oh, you hey, guys, so on that note, God bless you and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.